Bonjour. Hi. Hello. We are back stateside after a very exciting UTMB week. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm broadcasting from Healdsburg, California, and I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen, parked somewhere off of a road in California in my van. <laughs> <laughs> so we are coming to you from literally all over the place, though California themed, I guess, this week, which is kind of unusual for the three of us. Normally, that's my home base and, and you gals are off elsewhere. Um, so this is our third episode of Trail Society, and we are so excited to welcome you all back this week. Um, how's everyone doing? It's been a whirlwind. Yeah. I mean, international travel was in France. Uh, I did UTMB, which is, you know, we have a lot to talk about there. Well, I guess I did half of UTMB. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so then kicking off a book tour for me going headed over to the west coast that california living so you know i'm doing great it's just i don't really know what time zone i'm in so <laughs> and hillary you're actually about to kind of collide with keely keely what are you doing in california this weekend yeah so i'm in healdsburg for the lake sonoma 50 mile and weirdly enough my host family is actually also letting hilly park her van in their driveway so <laughs> we will be neighbors if we just decided to record in like eight hours from now we could have recorded together but <laughs> I think it's better that we're that we're doing it now but um yeah so I'm here for Lake Sonoma and it should be amazing the trails are in prime condition I ran some this morning and they're as beautiful as ever and last night the community was as welcoming as as it always is and everyone was so excited that the race is on after two years off um, as well as there's been some changes here. I don't know if you guys have heard, but basically Gina from Trail Sisters is now the race director for the Lake Sonoma races um, or the 50 mile. And so they're going to be doing a whole revamp kind of next year where they're going to be having a woman's only trail half. They're going to have a huge emphasis on getting females into both the 100K and TBD on the other race. It might be a 50K, it might be a 50 mile, but basically it's it's led up by two women, Kira Henninger, who a lot of people mistake for a relative of mine who she's not, um, as well as Gina. And they are both super stoked to put a new like female lens and inclusive lens on this race. Um, and Skip is more than happy to kind of lend, give the reins to these women and kind of oversee the whole race series, um, as like the lead director. So it's, it's, it's a pretty cool new, uh, twist on these races and I'll, I'm excited to see how it goes. That's so freaking exciting. And I'm, I'm assuming they're going to do a traditional April edition as well. Come 2022. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. They're deciding to go back towards April. Um, I actually, my host family was shocked that they had decided to put it on over Labor Day because it is notorious here for it being in triple digits during Labor Day. Um, however, we not, luckily have a marine layer that is snuck in and is going to keep the temperatures a little bit lower than triple digits. And so we should be looking at a little bit lower than 90 as the high, which, which is nice. Um, still hot, but better than in the hundreds. Yeah, it can be hot there in April, but definitely not triple digits. I think it feels hot in April because we're all coming out of winter, but this is that's going to be next level. I'm excited to see how the races pan out. Yeah, it'll be really cool. So we're obviously, I think Hilly and I are both a little jet lagged. I was also in Europe doing live commentary for the UTMB races, which was an insane way to be there and experience the event. I've run TDS in 2018 and UTMB in 2019. And so to be on the other side of things in a studio, watching things unfold from that lens was, I mean, I've done it a lot this year, but it's unusual and it's a totally different way to experience it. So we're going to spend a lot of time today breaking down what we saw out there because we saw things that alluded back to our last two episodes. And so Keely has spent a bunch of time putting together a ton of numbers for us, and we're very excited to dive in. But to get things started, just a quick overview of the UTMB races and a little bit of a kind of a, an announcement that I think most people are familiar with at this point. So UTMB has a series of races going on all week, starting with a volunteer and locals race, MCC. They also do PTL, which is like this crazy 300 kilometer team event. Um, they call it the uh, pedestrian race oftentimes, which I think is insane. Um, TDS, which Hilly and I have both run, um, followed by OCC, 55K, CCC, the 100K that's always fast and furious, and then the big event, the kind of the crown jewel of the weekend being UTMB starting Friday night. So it's a whole week festival of racing. But to kind of get us started before we dive into some questions of what we all saw out there, we just really want to um, bring to the forefront a thing that happened during race week. Um, in the midst of TDS, late 
I guess, technically late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, um, off this very technical pass around the 100K mark of TDS on a technical section. A runner fell and unfortunately succumbed to that accident, that incident, um, and, and lost his life out on the course. And it really changed the momentum for the week. It shifted kind of everyone's thoughts and feelings. It disrupted TDS. Only 297 runners were allowed to continue on from that point, And everyone else was sent back down to Borg St. Maurice or held up at other aid stations. I was out crewing for a teammate and it was super confusing because we thought the race had been neutralized all of a sudden. Um, we didn't know what was going on. We were waiting for our runner to come to a next aid station and we were getting words that the race might be canceled. Um, so it was a very confusing time for everyone, but the biggest thing is that we want to offer condolences to that runner's family and friends, but also to kind of bring this idea forward that it was really cool to witness what the community did that week in the sense that they, they created time and moments at the beginning of the next three races at OCC, at CCC and at UTMB to honor this runner and to honor other runners that we've lost since the last time we were all back in Chamonix together. Um, including Emma Roca and Andrea Hauser, who both lost their lives in the past 18 months. And um, the 21 runners, I think, that were, that lost their lives in a race in China this year. So they made, they made moments to celebrate these runners and to hopefully carry their spirit with every other racer heading around the mountain. And one of the Czech runners, the Czech runner who passed away, one of his friends read this statement at the beginning of UTMB. And I got chills like listening to it on live TV. I can't imagine being this in the start corral where Hillary was listening to this gentleman read this piece. Um, but we just want to, you know, bring that to everyone's attention that this thing did happen out there and, and our sport is not without tragedy. And the way the sport responded to it in carrying his spirit forward, I think was really powerful. So that's just kind of, we want to get that out there. Um, I think we all, we all got to experience that a lot during UTMB week, but we, it's hard to talk about any of these races without acknowledging that. So on that note, we do want to move forward and discuss what the week meant to us, what the weeks, what we saw out there. And so, um, Keely and Hillary, I'm wondering, Keely, maybe you can start us off. Was there any, like just initial takeaways from the week, things that either excited you, things that frustrated you, um, things that, you know, totally shocked you. What, what, what did you see from, from your vantage point in Portland, Oregon? Yeah. So my vantage point was definitely probably not as exciting as yours. Um, but I definitely noticed the, like the never ending, like enthusiasm at the start lines where it almost felt even from afar that the family was reunited and that everyone was back here, like wanting to push themselves and wanting to be there in the community that has been, you know, not together for the, the longest time. And so that sense of community, I feel like I could even feel from Portland. And so I can't even imagine how that must've felt for like you, Hillary, when you're out there and in Chamonix and getting ready to toe the line at UTMB. And so, yeah. I, I, I can't wait to hear it from your guys' perspective. Hillary, big takeaways from you before we dive into some of the numbers from this past week. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was, it was a, it felt like a homecoming. So yes. in the, in the, in the sense that Keely just mentioned of just everyone was there, the trail community. Um, but also for me in a different way, because I used to live there. And so those mountains almost felt like a second home. And so it felt incredible to just to come there and then be reunited with people from all over the globe you know you see these usually you see these you know your friends and um you know racers um just friends and family come there once a year but it's been a bit different so it felt really like a true celebration and kind of just a bigger perspective and I felt like a lot of gratitude being able to be there with everyone. Of course, it took a lot um, to get there with, you know, testing vaccinations, um, all of the, you know, different kind of paperwork to enter the different countries. Um, but I was really impressed with uh, the organization of UTMB and everyone else's diligence in order to come together as a community. Um, yeah. And of course, there's way more than I'm leaving out, but, uh, it was, we're, we're going to get into that. Yeah. There was also lots of, lots of croissants had lots of coffee, lots mm -hmm. of cheese was eaten. It was a great, it was a great week in that sense. So do we want to dive into performances or do we want to dive into some of the numbers as in like representation numbers? What do you guys want to do? Yeah, Let's do representation go. numbers and then we can go into the performances. Sweet. Um, awesome. So Keely, you spend a lot of time crunching some numbers for us, which I think is 
as always, very impressive since you also you have a real job outside of this as well. Um, so can you start us off maybe with, um, I think, diving into TDS and then kind of the natural weekly progression, what we saw? Because I think it's really interesting because it does, it mirrors what we've been talking about as far as average representation at these races. Yeah, totally. So kind of what I did here was really looked at how many people finished and how many people of, or how many of those finishers were females. And then we kind of broke those females out into how many of those were in the top. And so we're really tying this back to the initial episode, looking at seeing how at different distances, how do females perform? What is the general percentage of females in these races? Is it increasing from that those stats we kind of showed you in that first episode. Um, and so if you guys are remembering in the first episode, we kind of talked to UTMB of 2019 um, and we were seeing like between a 10 and 15% um, percentage of the participants finishing these races being females. Um, and this year we're not seeing anything that different from that. So when we start with TDS, which is the around 90 mile race long, um, again, it's long. It's so long. I can't even imagine. Um, we saw a very small number of finishers, obviously due to the unforeseen event that happened. Um, however, the amount of women who finished were only about 9.5% of that final finishing field, which I mean, kind of makes sense to us because we're seeing it as a little bit lower than we would expect because a lot of these people were turned around at only 60 kilometers. And so in my mind, a lot of the women who probably would have gotten a little faster over time, which we've seen in a lot of longitudinal data across races, probably did not get an opportunity to finish this race. Um, however, the cool thing about this was when we did look at the top female finishers, we saw that in the top 46, which was the first like page of the UTMB results. Basically there was a 16% amount of women in that top 46. So again, this longer distance was not like overly represented by females. However, in those top positions, there were more females than a lot of the females who finished the race overall, which is in line with what we've seen. And that's pretty cool that we're seeing that. Heck yeah. And I think what's really cool is that that's about to be contrasted a little bit when you talk about OCC, as far as representation goes. So can we just, we'll come back to results for TDS, but can you just touch for a second, like going from TDS and 90 mile race down to OCC, a 55 kilometer race. So once again, approachability, a distance, who's going to enter. Yep. Yeah. So I'd say from an approachability perspective, this race is obviously a little bit more digestible for females and males alike. And so there's actually a closer to 20% female, um, finisher rate in this, in this race, or no, sorry, not finisher rate, but percent finishers, um, which is, you know, 10% higher than in that longer race. However, when we look at that top, those top positions overall, we're only seeing about 10% of those positions being filled by females, which is about half of what we saw in TDS. And so that makes sense. This, this race is obviously over half the distance of, or less than half the distance of TDS. And so, um, for those, those times to be in that top page, it makes sense. There's not as many females. And this kind of goes, goes forward for all of the races in the UTMB series. Um, CCC, we see kind of a similar trend to TDS. We see a little bit more females in that race. And then in UTMB, we see only 7% of female finishers, which is extremely low. However, we see that Courtney DeWalter finished 8% back on the lead male, which is tying into some of the things we saw in a previous episode where that, that gap between genders is getting a little smaller as that distance gets longer. Um, and a lot of um, the women were in the top. So there were top seven women in the top 44. So there were about 16%. Yeah. Um, so double the overall percentage who finished were in that top, that top realm, which is also really, really cool. Yeah. And just to put that into perspective for folks. So Courtney finished seventh overall, which tied Rory Bosio's best, like basically the highest of a female has ever finished in UTMB tied, tied Rory Bosio in that where Rory, Rory Bosio set the, the then course record, um, which Courtney broke here, despite the course running slower, this, this course has the pyramid section in it, which I think is super stupid but it, it's about 45 minutes slower than the, than the course that Rory had run. Additionally, the year that Rory ran that and was seventh in the overall field, she was 11% back from the, the first place male that year. So once again, we've closed it to below the 10%, like the standard difference is about 10%. So being under that, I think is like a big exclamation mark of the distance has gone up. Courtney is obviously an exceptional athlete. I think it's really cool to recognize her as one of the best while she's actively doing it. 
Um, but I think that's really, really interesting. And then of note too, that the top, the top Americans in the field beyond, behind Courtney, the second, the second American was actually Katie Scheid in ninth. So really, really cool to have the top two Americans in the race be, be women. And maybe that's a story that we'll get into in a little bit, but, um, Hillary, I'm wondering if you have anything to add to that as far as, you know, maybe beyond the numbers a little bit, anything that you, you saw out there that, that stood out as far as representation in the fields, um, or percent of women, you know, crushing it, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, one thing to add to that too, um, is that this year the weather was actually pretty spectacular. So I don't really know what the weather was in Rory's year. I think it was ridiculously hot as it can be like, you know, going over Col de Bonhomme and like a uh, Col de Grand Ferry, they're the tallest, um, coals out there. They're about like 85, 8,600 feet. Um, but you can, you can still have freezing temperatures like during the race that we had, um, last week there was kind of fog where you actually really couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of you. So, you know, your headlamp was pretty much useless. Um, so that was pretty much the only thing that slowed you, uh, slowed you down. It wasn't extreme heat. Of course it does. It, it was hot, but I think from a weather standpoint, it was, it was a uh, superb for a, a fast time on that course. So I think that explains the difference from an 8% versus an 11% for Rory versus Courtney's both incredible. Yeah. Um, so, but you have to remember too, that that's a percent back from the male, right. male leader. And I, mm-hmm. I don't, and I, I, I'm on the record of saying this already. I, I said this with Dylan on, on the pillars podcast is I don't think Francois, I don't, I think if the field had held together better, Francois would have been on the podium, but he wouldn't have won. Like they had, they had the conditions to be sub 20 hours and they did not do that. Which I think is uh, like, it's, it's hard to use that in the comparison sense, but from like an outside point of view, I don't think that his time reflects the conditions like Courtney's time does. Right. And I think that also goes into say, you know, he is coming off of hard rock. Courtney actually did not finish hard rock. Um, and so, you know, there's, a, there's a difference that between the lead male performance, of course, Francois, it's amazing four-time UTMB winner, but yes, you're right. Exactly. I mean, it's not, we're not comparing apples to apples in this case. Um, but that was just something to note because nor- normally UTMB can be quite a, you know, uh, coin toss when it comes to the weather. And usually you get on the tail side of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think at least from the start, I mean, I, I had a, you know, a great taper. So of course you're feeling super great when you, when you start out, but I was something to, to note is that the start was very fast. Um, I think, you it know, all, it split, always is people go insane. Well, yes. Hello, of course. And so, but I mean, I felt like I was running in control and I was, you know, 12th coming into San Gervais. And, um, when I came into Le Contamine, you know, that's, I was about three sixteen, Um, and I was maybe 10th at this time. And I mean, I felt like I was running in control because that is usually the part it's, it's the flatter part of the race. You're not even into the mountains yet. So I thought that I was running in control and that, that if you do the split time can put it, you can put you kind of at that sub 24 hour mark. So pretty fast time. And there's a lot of ladies running faster than that. So, um, and I don't know, obviously that's could be a result of a lot of the, the, the training that these, the, a lot of the women, um, that I was running with, um, you know, were more comfortable with there. A lot of them were coming off of Western States and coming into this race, right. So they still had more running, maybe more running legs than, uh, the climbing. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously a, a incredible mountain race like UTMB, it's uh, it's pretty humbling to see how fast everyone starts out. Um, but well, it didn't necessarily serve them well because the average <laughs> spread in the women's top 10 by the finish line, Whoa. clearly Courtney was very much in control and that was a pace yeah. that she could s- sustain, but no one else could sustain it. The second place female was as far back from Courtney as Courtney was from Francois. Mm-hmm. She won by like almost an hour 40 and then third was another hour back from second. And by the time you got to 10th, it was over six hours was right. the spread between Courtney and 10th. And, and mind you, Courtney ran exceptionally well, ran, ran, put together this phenomenal record breaking performance, but the field could not sustain that pace, obviously, given how much it splintered over the next a hundred miles. Correct. However, I would let, I mean, Kemi Brias, who, who plays second, her time was 2409. So that's actually not a slow time. That's actually a pretty good time. And I think that's maybe for, you know, she's coming off of Lavaredo, um, maybe like a similar like mountain race, but I still think that, yes, it was far back from Courtney's time because Courtney ran incredible, but 2409 is actually a, that, that would win 
Um, For sure. But then you still have a four hour spread between her and 10th if she had been the winner. And I think the men's spread was two and a half hours between Mm -hmm. first and 10th. So it's just like, that is a big spread in this race, given what we saw. So extra big given Courtney's finish. But even if we said, say Courtney hadn't finished and Camille had won, Mm -hmm. that's still a four hour difference, over a four hour difference between first and 10th. And that, that's a huge, that's like, that's that I think highlights the race of attrition that went on out there. Absolutely. And I mean, if you look at the third place time, Mimi 25 hours, I think, you know, in any other year that, um, you know, that maybe would have been placed high, like there would have been more finishers, maybe top five, I believe. Um, that would be in 2019 when UTMB happened. Um, top five women would be kind of more closer to that time range. So yeah, absolutely. And I think um, this is really interesting that of course, all these hundred mile races are, you know, in the end, a race of attrition. However, I think UTMB played out um, on the men's and women's side to be that way, but particularly on the women's side, at least that's something that um, we can focus on, but, uh, I, I think it was just because of the, if you look at the start list, sure. We had an incredibly deep field of elite women starting, but if you also look at what they had run, uh, earlier this year, I think that can kind of maybe add some evidence to why it was such a race of attrition. <laughs> and and totally. what, what we also know, so yes, we can say that there wasn't necessarily, oh, the men's wasn't a race of attrition, but it was like, Keely did the numbers. Keely, what are the numbers for, and we're going to talk about DNFs later, but just hit us quickly with what are the numbers for the UTMB top, like the elite, like rate of attrition? What happened there? Yeah. Well, I just want to, I just want to say one thing before that is that although there was a giant spread in these top 10 women, we have to remember that they still like when we break them out into top overall, they were still making up like almost 20% of the, the top finishers. And so while they were still spread out a good amount, like so was all the other men. And so, yeah, it was totally a race of attrition. And I don't think being four hours back of third is, is going to make it any less like admirable in my opinion. Um, Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So if we look at all of the ITRA favorite lists, which is pretty interesting, they, they list out the top 80 ITRA scores before the races. Um, for the men, we see that there was around a 50% drop rate from those that started off that ITRA list. Um, and for the women, it was about a 38% drop rate off that ITRA list. So um, overall, there were less women who dropped out off that ITRA list than men. However, when we look at the overall drop rate of UTMB, um, there we see about a 35% drop rate. So both elite groups you know, dropped more relative to the overall runners. Um, So that's something to note, which I mean, makes sense if you're going out hard because you're excited and you're fit and you know, 50 kilometers in, you're like, all right, I got this. Like, and you're really pushing yourself. You're more likely to probably hit that wall and and decide to drop than, than someone who's starting a little bit slower. Yeah. Or someone who's someone who spent years trying to get into this thing. Right. Like, and we're going to talk, we're going to talk more about DNFs in a second, but I just want to highlight a thing that I don't want to be misconstrued is that although these races are a race of attrition, I don't think that takes away from the people who are in these top 10 groups because you can't win a race. You didn't start and you can't win a race. You didn't finish. So I, I just want to make that very clear. It's really easy to sit here and say, Oh, well, it's a race of attrition. You just stick it out and you're in that group because you still have to stick it out to be in that group. So it's like, no, no, uh, I don't want to sound callous or like that they're not undeserving of that finish, but we're just looking at the the general numbers here. So just want to make sure it's like, yes, there's no less value in it, but we're looking at the overall field and what played out. I think another interesting story, and I think Keely, you've, you've looked at some of the numbers here too, is that can you talk about age at all, as far as like, like let's steer towards performances now. Um, yeah. Can you like that to me stood out as like a, wow moment this week and you've done some of the numbers there. So can you highlight those, those, yeah. those athletes? Yeah. Well, I, I think we, we talked a lot about the UTMB results. Um, so let's like go into CCC a little bit, and this is where I think the ages are pretty interesting. Um, so the top three females, uh, aside from Abby Hall, who was second place American, she is in her mid twenties. The first place female was 39 years old and the third place female was 56 or sorry, 41 years old. I might've calculated that wrong. Um, and Abby's, Abby's 31, just so you know, oh, 31. Abby, Abby's okay. a nine as, as a 90 with me. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Uh, I've, I've never asked her. I just assumed from talking to her bubbly <laughs> she, personality, she's yeah. my age. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can um, be bubbly too. 
Totally. A hundred percent. It's just, as you get older, ages become so irrelevant. Right. But, but I think this is kind of highlighting like age as something as a factor of experience in these longer races, because we're looking at CCC and then we go into TDS and you see third place in TDS was 56 years old. And you're just wondering like, how are these women able to contend in this, these top spots at, at these ages? And and then also Mimi Kokta is 41 as well. She was third place at UTMB. So there's just a lot of these quote unquote older, which are, they're not old at all, but you know, older in the sport, in the realm of sport that are just absolutely crushing these races and getting these top spots over younger athletes. And my first thought is just the experience is really helping them in these, in these races of attrition. And so would be interested to get your guys' thoughts on this. It was really cool to watch Marta come across the line. Marta Meliste is a, uh... Uh, Marta Melis Condina, I think, uh, of Spain came one CCC and it was really cool because actually the Czech woman Petra led for much of the race and was in tears at the, at the start of the race, um, you know, with, with the loss of the Czech athlete in TDS. And so Petra went out and and led the race for 75% of it or so. And then Marta and Abby kind of moved up through the field, but Marta came through and got to run in with her son. And it was so cool to see this, you know, this, 39 year old crushing CCC with like, with her, you know, like we see a lot of dads run across the finish line, carrying babies and their heads are bouncing around or with toddlers. But I like beam, it makes me so happy and so inspired and so hopeful for, you know, all of our futures, um, to watch these women, you know, run across the line, holding the hand of a, of a toddler or of a young, a young child. So, um, that, you know, made me, made my day getting to watch that happen. Yeah. So when you're racing at these events, um, unlike in the U S the way the ages are categorized you see senior, and then you see veteran V1 or V2 or V3. And so V kicks in at 40. So V1 is 40 to 49. And Mimi was so excited. Cause I think she turned 40 this year, actually at the beginning of August. And she was like, yes, like I'm in the veterans category. Like I can win the veterans class. And they do, they award, the top three in these age groups as well at these races is very, very cool to see. And Mimi was actually, I think the second veteran to finish in UTMB. There was a gentleman in the, I think who, I think Ludo was fourth in the men's race. And I think he, it was the first veteran in that race. So very, very cool to see, but like not a unique experience is to be at UTMB and to like, look at the list. And like, there's so many V ones in the top 10 list for men and women. And you're just like, wow, okay. Like experience rules at these races. Um, but outside of that, I'd love to go back to OCC and talk about the performances there because it was a fast and furious race with the men and the women just storming through, um, Keely or Hillary, one of you want to take us through kind of what happened in that race from your perspective. Keely, I'll let you take it away. Perfect. Well, I wasn't there, but from my perspective, I got to crunch the numbers after the fact. So that makes me a super nerd. Um, so yeah, we had five top females in the top 50, which is awesome for this short of a race. That's 10%. Um, and the first place female is Blantine. Correct. Correct me if I'm pronouncing her reign, her name horribly wrong, please. Um, She's an OBGYN, by the way. Yes, yes. Like Rachel Drake has told me about her, that she's like this lovely physician who's just rocks all aspects of life. And so hats off to her for absolutely smashing the course record. 545 for that 50 plus K with all of the climbing is so fast. Um, only about 12% off the lead mail, which is similar to what we see on road marathon scale. So, you know, that kind of makes sense for this race of this distance. And then, and she got lost. I'm pretty sure like she should have, I think she should have been further under the course record and something happened up by the, like at the top of like La Flagere somewhere is like, we didn't get cameras on it, but I think something happened. So she could have been even faster, I believe. Dang. Yeah. So there we go. That could make it even closer to that lead mail time. And then that's not even that shocking because the lead males were also setting new course records. So like the course record was set in the men's race and the women's race. And so these people were just flying, which could have been a result of Hillary's previous point about the weather being pretty ideal for racing, but it also could just be like, all of these new people in the sport, all these people now being able to prioritize training in different ways, or just, you know, coming out of this hiatus, really hungry to race are just absolutely slaying these races. And it's really, really fun to watch. Yeah, it was like the men's race was this epic, epic battle where the top two men went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Ultimately, Jonathan Albin took the win there, but I believe the top five or six men 
were under Steon's course record from 2019. And Steon is not, is not slow. So yes, the wow. weather was a factor there, but they, but Jonathan broke the record by 17 minutes. So huge, yeah. huge result there. Incredibly fast field. Um, we also want to pay, you know, our respects to TDS as well. We've talked a little bit about that, but they did, there was a distinct difference. They've changed the course a couple of times over the past couple of years, but this year, instead of starting, I started at 8 a.m. Hillary started it at 4 a.m. This year, they were supposed to start at 3 p.m., but the tunnel was so backed up that they started they started late, started at 3.30 p.m. And this was one of the few races this week where course records were not broken. And I've got lots of speculations about that, but Hillary, I'm wondering, you know, having had experience on that course, on this new course as well, you know, can you imagine what it would be like to, to start this at 3.30 p.m. <laughs> now having started UTMB? at 5, 5 p.m., like what that must have been like for these athletes. Yeah, so this is something too. I think it really, start times really can change the race. I mean, especially something like TDS. So how TDS goes is actually the first about 50K is pretty non-technical. Um, you kind of climb up out of Cormier. It's a, it's the ski hill. You're actually on the dirt road, not on the switchback single single track that uh, UTMB descends into Cormier. And then you kind of go up this steep climb, but it's nothing too technical. And the first descent, actually there's two big descents and they're fire roads. And so that, you know, that makes sense if you're doing it early in the morning um, or comparing to UTMB, right? UTMB starts at night. And so you're kind of on the least technical section of the whole entire race at, when it's getting dark um, with the exception of, you know, cold to but still you're hiking and you're going slower. So, um, TDS really, in my opinion, it changes the race entirely. I mean, so Seth Swanson, he, um, you know, shout out to him. He was also of the V2 finisher. So he was also a veteran. Um, he's over 40 and he finished seventh overall. So again, kind of tying back into our previous point, but Seth's time was uh, seventh and his time was only an hour. Um, he was about 21 hours. His time was only an hour faster than mine finishing second in 2019. And the leading ladies were finishing in about 24 hours. So that's, that's about three hours slower than, um, you know, the, the top finishing times, um, from 2019. And I think this goes to the start time. It changed the race entirely because you're in the most, the non-technical section of, TDS in the light. But then as you start to climb to Pasteur Prolongion, which is kind of that and um, that section where the TDS runner fell, you get to the some of the most uh technical and remote sections of that entire race. And you're running it at night. And I'm not sure exactly um the percentage, but do you do you slow down when you're running at night, regardless if you're running on a technical or non-technical trail? That's just what happens. And so I think that can bring the pace down even more. There was extreme wind. I think TDS, when we're talking about ideal weather, TDS was the only race that actually did not have ideal weather. They're actually forecasted to have thunderstorms from 3 p.m. until they had huge thunderstorms. It yeah. was kind of <clears throat> wild out there. The yeah, course was from... super slippery. Exactly. From their start time. And so I think. Um, maybe with regard to the weather and heading up over the most technical part of the, of the race, um, when there's forecasted to be bad weather and a TDS in the past, Corinne, when you ran it, you were actually, um, deviated, uh, around Pasteur Prolongyang because you had really bad weather. And it's a really notorious for mudslides, rock slides, and that it's, it's just granite and it's, it's really slippery when wet. Um, and so I think it changed the entire, the, the course entirely, because I think there's a lot of people, if you see, you know, uh, where people were being turned around, they had their space blankets. It was very cold. Not only was it wet, but it was extremely windy. And so everyone had uh, mandated a cold weather kit, um, to carry with them for, for TDS and actually all of the races that week. Um, but I think the night start, well, the afternoon start, uh, really changed the, the, the race entirely because the most technical parts, again, of Ercolda, uh, Pasteur Prolongion, down to Cormier-Rosalon, and then you have all of these kind of off-trail goat trails, not really a designated single-track trail. Um, you climb up really high, and then you descend down into Beaufort. This is the new section of TDS. All of that is going to be happening at, happening at night. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it really slowed down um, every single one of the runners, men and women. 
Yeah, it was, it was, I was at before at that aid station and Tyler Green came in with a broken pole. Everyone came in covered in dirt. They had slipped and slid their way down that descent into that aid station. Um, it was, you know, and, and like, while we had no idea what was going out, uh, going on on course behind them, but some pretty, pretty hard conditions. Everyone looked absolutely wrecked after TDS. I think I asked Tyler Green, I said, you know, good job, Tyler. And he said, this is so hard. Like his response, he was just the shell of a human so early in the race. So I think it, it took a lot out of people. And then kind of the other race that we didn't talk a whole lot about, um, which I think is interesting is PTL. And I'm wondering, um, Keely, if you can just highlight for us kind of what, like what PTL is, and then kind of the, there's a unique, a unique thing about the race that's kind of pertinent to the things that we've talked about recently. Yeah. So PTL is a 300 kilometer race. And to Corinne's previous point, they call it the citizens race or some pedestrians race. And I don't understand why, because it seems like the hardest race out of all of them. So it's well, 300 kilometers. Because, because you're just walking the whole time. A lot of people. <laughs> that's <laughs> probably that's true <laughs> because it's so dang long. So it's 300 K and they start on Monday, I believe. And they go until they finish. Um, and it has 25,000 meters of the climbing as well. So that is a crazy amount. And it's like completed in teams of two to three. And obviously this is for safety reasons. And among other reasons, I would never do that long of a race by myself. Um, however, there were only 61 teams that started this and only 60% or sorry, 40% finished. So there was a 60% drop rate in this race. Um, and there were no, to my knowledge, and please send us a note after this. If you know any different, there were no full female teams. There were only mixed teams and then male teams. Um, and so to me, that's pretty crazy. I'm like, well, shoot, maybe next year we should go do it guys. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so therefore there were no full female teams that finished this race. Um, and just a couple who were mixed teams that finished it. And so, yeah, that's an interesting little tidbit. On this yeah. Race. I didn't, I didn't look at the start list. I don't know if any all female teams started. I think it's pretty classic that there'll be mixed teams with, with one, with one female on it. Um, and the winning team this year. And I think that I believe they won in 2019 as well as a duo, a Swiss, a duo of Swiss brothers. Hmm. Um, and they finished, they, they, I mean, they finished in like a hundred hours. So an, an insane week for all of them, but they, they have from Monday morning until Sunday when the last UTMB finisher comes in to complete it. So they have the entire week to get it done, but it's an absolutely insane, insane feat, um, of endurance. They get, yeah, they go to a lot of refugios, I think to, to restock because they don't really have aid stations or anything in their race. Um, okay. We've talked about TDS. We've talked about OCC. We've talked about CCC. Um, we've talked about UTMB. What are we missing? What, what have we not covered that is super interesting from these fields performances that inspired you, um, statistics that were fascinating. Um, anything like that before we kind of boogie into our final topic for today. Oh, I have one that kind of is, is very relevant towards the DNF conversation as we are going into that direction. Um, one performance, or I guess multiple performances, but one in particular that I really liked around UTMB was Jermaine, who got fifth place as a male. And I felt that he really showed the same kind of perseverance that a lot of the females had showed um, in that race that kind of like sucked through and just got that top 10 spot. Cause he was like running second and third all day and just kind of kept that mental audacity to keep going and still ended up fifth place, which I feel like was so cool. Um, and obviously watching from the comfort of my warm bed, <laughs> I could have like a very like negligent and, um, negative view of some of the people that are DNFing in my mind. I'm like, what the heck are you doing? Like you're out here racing UTMB, like you should just finish. And so to see like people like Jermaine and Mimi and all these people who are just crushing it and suffering and then still coming out with really top finishes, I was just really, really impressed by that. Um, and so that was me being a little bit naive. Um, and because in my mind, the DNFs were, were very pertinent this year. There was a lot of them. However, we all know that like DNFing is a huge deal and, and there's not a reason there's never like a bad reason to DNF. I think it's very much the individual choice. Um, and there should be no like feeling bad for that choice because in the moment that is what you should do. There's a lot of reasons why it's a very good decision. And so, yeah, I guess, that's me kind of teeing you up here, Hillary, because we all know you were coming into this race. So stoked to be back in your homeland, 
doing so many hours on the trail, so many hours on the bike. Um, and you didn't end up finishing this race, which I know is not the most like your favorite decision, but obviously you made this decision in a very smart way, calculated way, and would love to hear your thought process around that. And like what was going through your head that day. Um, yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah. So to, to echo what Keely's saying, I mean, I think that there is, and I mean, Corinne, we mentioned this, like before we even started talking, there's this whole culture, I think in ultra running of like death or, you know, death before DNF. And, um, honestly, I think I had that opinion not too long ago. Um, and it's taken me a while to get here. And I think, um, it's a combination of self-awareness of self-preservation. Um, but you know, there's a fear, especially as an elite runner coming in and not finishing something and me not having the excuse, like other people who had run big races that year. Um, and so, and for me, it's more of like a, and also just personal, right. I would just beat myself up if I didn't, I like to finish what I started. So we all have egos. Like that's, that's a real thing. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And so, um, right. I think that's part of the battle of, of acknowledging it now. And I think there's many reasons why people DNF, I think, um, as elites, I think there's, you know, for preservation of performance, you know, if you're, if you have a goal and you're not accomplishing that goal, then, you know, saving yourself for another good performance, right? Like if you have a goal to place in the top three and you're falling out of that, okay, well then sometimes elites choose to pull the plug. Um, but again, like Keely mentioned to German, um, you know, he wasn't, but he still kept going and it's still a very good, um, very good result. Now, uh, I think for me, I've always come to this point is if I reach a point where it's going to cause physical injury, then that's a time to pull the plug. And that can be, you know, physical injury as in like broken bones, ligaments, all these things from a fall. Um, we all remember Tim Tolson when he, and I think it was 2019 where he had to get helicoptered off the cliff, maybe or a little bit uh, too much, but because he, he had gashed his leg open and then, you know, he was unable to kind of move after that point um, when he kept running. And so um, there's that, or, you know, there's this idea of, you know, nausea, your body isn't working and you're literally not able to keep calories down. I believe that that's what happened to Courtney DeWalter when she DNF'd out of hard rock earlier this year. Um, again, not my story to tell, but I mean, I think that's what she has, she had said. Um, but for, for my, for my experience in a DNF, that's exactly what happened. I had to kind of weigh these, um, the pluses and minuses of, okay, am I going to continue to cause physical, physical damage? Um, or is it, or is this just a mental block that I, you know, need to get over it and keep going? Um, and for me, I was even lucky to get to the start line. So back in April, I broke my foot and, uh, had to take five weeks off had surgery April 8th, wasn't even allowed to walk until, um, end of May, very beginning of June. Um, and so then I started running. So really I'd only had three months of cycling and running under my belt before getting to the start line. So that was like in incredible. And I wanted to give it a go because starting something like UTMB is it's, you can learn so much, I think from these races that don't go according to plan. And for me, it's, it was even a harder decision to DNF because my stomach felt good. Physically, I felt great. I was, I think it was in ninth place when, um, I finally decided to pull the plug, but it, for me, it was a, a physical thing. I had stopped on a rock and felt a pop in the foot, like exactly where I had broken it. And I just didn't feel like running another 50 miles, uh, would probably, you know, do, do, uh, anything good for me. <laughs> so I think a week or two of, of recovery is better than, you know, starting back over. And so mine is maybe more of an extreme, um, situation. I think, um, that was kind of a more black and white, right. I certainly could have continued to go on, but it's like, at what point, um, I think it would have caused more, you know, physical damage, but of course I was gutted, but, you know, and you always go through these, mm, you know, thinking if, oh, should I have kept going, especially when you look how the, you know, the race of attrition played out, especially on the female side, but um, it's having that self-awareness and being able to listen to those, that gut intuition and know when it's a, a stopping point versus not. Um, and I know Corinne, you've had some, some points in your career where you've had to make the same decision. And I know everyone's story is different. And I think the whole point of this is to, to tell that, there is no judgment. And I think, especially when it comes to ultra distance running, you're out there for a long time. You're asking your body and your mind to do a lot. And so there's sometimes we, when 
it's actually better um, for things to kind of go unfinished. Yeah, I like to say that you know, it's, it's okay to drop out if you're hurt. I struggled, but it, I like in my mind, it's like, it's okay for me to drop out if I'm hurt. It's not okay for me to drop out if I'm hurting, i.e. I just need to work through a mental, a mental block. Um, I think it's important to note too, that like that timing is really important for these races, right? Particularly for the elites where it's like, this was Germain's like his at first attempt at a hundred. And I think his goal was to finish, to finish and race well at UTMB versus like people chasing golden tickets for Western States where it's like, if they finish this 100K, will they be able to do the next 100K in order to get the golden ticket there when they've fallen off pace at this other race? So there's going to be, there's preservation of career in general. There's preservation of the season, right? Like you've decided to preserve your season by not continuing on a potentially broken foot so that you can recover more quickly to hopefully get to race again before the, the year is up. So there's going to be little things. One thing that struck me like very, I don't know, like it hit me right in the feels after the race was Tim Tolison saying, I wasn't strong enough to not start. Like he went in with a known injury, but people and, and Mimi Coca said the same thing at, 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 during her finish line interview. She said, I had no business running a hundred mile this weekend, but I started because it's UTMB. So I think these big races, right. For the elites, just like for everyone else, you start the race because it's UTMB, but because the elites can get in year after year after year by having enough points to not have to go through the lottery, they can drop out without the ill effect of never being able to race this race again versus, you know, my, like I had two dudes in UTMB and they both finished and, you know, they both had hard, really hard time, you know, had hard moments, but they like, they persevered because that was their one opportunity to do this race. And so I think that it's like, there's, there's a, a multifaceted lens in which we have to look at DNFs for the, for the elites and for everyone else. Yes. The death before DNF thing, I think applies to everyone and the hurt versus hurting applies to everyone. But I think that there's like, there's oftentimes this skepticism of around elites dropping out of like, Oh, like we don't drop out. Why do you drop out type of thing? And so I think it's really this multifaceted thing. Keely, do you have any personal experience with, with DNFs? Yeah, totally. I've definitely DNF before. Um, yeah. And I think, I think your mind will come up with a reason to drop out in every single race, right? Because we're doing something that is like so unnatural <laughs> for us that like, there's going to be a point in every race where your, your mind's like, no, <laughs> this hurts, or this is, this is dumb, or you did this wrong. And this hurts. Like there's going to be a point where you just absolutely hate what you're doing. And, and, and like, a lot of people don't really believe me when I say that, but a lot of my best races, there's been points where I still hate it. Um, I think my biggest like drop, um, times or like my, my most regretful races haven't even been times I've dropped. They've just been times that I've actually given up in my mind. Um, and I think that's almost just as bad as dropping because I think like, what the, the, the really cool thing about this sport is that we're like getting to choose to be out there. And so like, I've DNF before because of crazy injuries and that feels okay. Um, but I've done races where I've just given up mentally and that feels way worse than like a drop would have been. Um, and it's just because like you stop, you stop remembering why you're out there and that it is actually your choice. And then you're just like, so ungrateful for being out there and you just kind of give up. Um, and those have been my worst experiences and they're not necessarily DNFs, but like, in my mind, it's, it's kind of a DNF because like, I just kind of gave up. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Before we got on the, before we hit the record button, I was telling you guys a story about, you know, we, you had to cultivate these things and sharing my, uh, my high school cross country experience where I, I, I knew that, you know, I, there wasn't a reason for me to drop out, but I, man, I'd have really bad races where my mind would just lose it. And I'd be like, well, I can't just stop. But if I fall over a rock hard enough, like they'll let me stop running. So it's like, yes, like, and you know, and I don't, I don't, I never actually fell over a rock in order to, to drop out of a cross country race in high school, but we've all been there. We've all, I have definitely many a good race of mine. I have decided to quit ultra running multiple times during said good race. And so once again, that's the difference between hurting and being hurt and having to differentiate between the two is really hard deep into a race. Like, is this pain in my head or is this pain in my foot or is it in my stomach? Um, and so these things are never pretty. And, you know, like why, why do we have to share the stories of DNFs, right? Like 
you're not justifying it to anyone, but in some way, like you, you do, you're justifying it to yourself. You're justifying it to the rest of the world who you think cares about your DNF. But the truth is like, there are many, many good reasons to drop out of races and be them, be them personal or be them public. Um, I think it's, you know, in our entire discussion about, particularly about attrition in this race, like everyone's got their reason. And I think there's no shame in, uh, in pulling the, like knowing when to say when, like knowing when to say when and fold and like fold your cards is a very important skill set to have as a human outside of running as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think like, I had never really been okay DNFing until I kind of did the same thing Hillary did. I had broken my, my sacrum back in 2019 and then still decided to rush training for two months and line up for CCC. And it was during that race where I kind of decided that my mental game was finally back. I was finally so excited to be out there. I felt good, but there was just something wrong. Like I was just not ready. My body was saying no. And that was the first DNF where I was happier DNFing than I had been finishing some other races because I was mentally okay with my decision because I knew it was just like what I had to do. It wasn't me mentally giving up on myself. It was me like acknowledging what was going to be the most beneficial for my body. And I'm sure like just, just hearing Hillary talk about it, like I'm so proud of her for her decision because it sounds like she's handling it just so, so well. And that it was the absolute right decision. And there's just no shame in that, but like makes me so excited for like what she has in store in the future for her next races. So proud of you, Hillary. Well, thanks. And well, so there was definitely some tears. I think when we talked about having this conversation, I was like, guys, I might cry if I talk about it. So it's never easy, but yeah, I mean, and I completely agree. And then also just, just to say, I mean, my, well, my first DNF was actually not the best. I mean, it's where I fell off a cliff and I, that was of no choice of mine. Um, but I think also it's like, right. This, this race is kind of more of a physical stop, but I think these, you know, people always say ultra running is only what there's different numbers, but like 5% physical, like 90% mental, or I don't even know. And then the rest of it's an eating contest. Um, but I think the mental piece for these things, um, it's also like guarding the stoke. Um, and I think like, you know, telling yourself, okay, I'm going to sit this one out now. And then you're guarding it up for later for when, you know, all things are kind of, all think all cylinders are firing. Um, but I think the mental part of things is also really, is really important to take care, to take care of and, and to really listen to your intuition and kind of be able to distinguish this takes some, some wisdom and some practice, but knowing if this is just a hard moment or if mentally you just don't have it that day. I once dropped out of a race because I started vomiting and I thought the sticks on the trail were fingers. So there are lots of reasons to drop out of races. Sorry, my internet freaked out for a second. So I joined back <laughs> in, in the midst of Hillary's last statement, but, um, I'm, I'm so proud of you, Hilly, for making that decision. It's not easy. I know tears were shed. They always are. I think that's mm. totally reasonable. Um, yeah. but that's, that's why we keep getting to start lines is to work through those really hard things out there on the trail and hopefully take risks and, you know, come up with big wins down the road too. I'm wondering if this is a great segue into kind of like wrapping things up and bringing up our society slam, because I know Keely's got a beefy society slam for us this week. Does that sound good to y'all? Yeah. Sick. Uh, beefy is a weird choice of words, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. A, a large, a whomping. I'm not sure how you want to describe it. Yeah. I guess when you talk about like menstrual cycle, GI disturbances, it could be, <laughs> it could warrant that kind of terminology, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I got reached out to by a ton of females in the community who were super interested in our touch on GI distress during the menstrual cycle. Um, and we'd only touched on it for like one minute in that past episode and they were, they were eager for more. So we might need to do a whole episode obviously on the menstrual cycle, but maybe we'll touch on this even more then. Um, however, I did just want to emphasize that, um, that GI distress is extremely common, um, before or during your menstrual cycle. And so I found a bunch of studies, um, particularly one by Matthew Bernstein out of university of Manitoba in Canada, which was back in 2014 that showed that almost 75% of women report these symptoms, um, before or during their period. 
and that these were also correlated to increased levels of fatigue and mental stress, which in my mind is super interesting for menstrual cycle, GI distress and trail running, because when we're doing these trail events, we're having super high levels of fatigue already. So it put that on exacerbated from the menstrual cycle, as well as mental stress. No wonder our gut can kind of go berserk during these events, during these times in our cycle. Um, and so Yeah. Some of the recommendations that I've found online, which I think our trail running community will find comical is to avoid sugary foods and caffeine, (laughs) which (laughs) is not something we are advised to do during races and long runs because we typically eat a crap ton of sugar and a lot of caffeine. So I think we're going to need to deep dive into this a little bit more in the future to really figure out what the best ways are to combat this GI distress that is definitely cyclical with our menstrual cycle, but also exacerbated towards, um, uh, what we do on the trails. And so, yeah, that was my society slam because I felt like a lot of women were really, really stoked about it. So just kind of wanted to emphasize that it is common. Um, and if anyone has any ideas on how to combat it, shoot them our way. Yeah. That was my 2020 black canyons race. And there's not a whole lot of foliage to hide behind out there. I might add. So, um, it was not the most pleasant hundred K experience I've ever had, but it's a real thing. You're not alone. Um, I had some other menstrual cycle questions come up in my, um, in my Instagram DMS, particularly about fatigue and recovery. So we're going to have to do a whole episode on hormones and the menstrual cycle and kind of how, you know, both the individual and idealized cycle might influence all those things. So stay tuned for that one. We'll get all of our best science, sciencey nerd things together for that. My society slam and my internet's kind of sketched. So I'm not going to try to pull up Instagram right now to pull up the message, but I was reached out to by a, a runner who is a biracial Asian American trail runner, um, has not done races, um, in part because the idea of running, basically she, she brought to light that running in their culture isn't necessarily seen as this, like as this positive that it's kind of frowned upon as like, why are you doing this thing? Um, which I thought was really interesting, just like something that I'm not aware of or have any insight into, but also like they were bringing up the, the 50, 50 conversation we had of, um, you know, is that the best way to increase both female participation and diversity in the sport? And their argument was that that hasn't oftentimes worked in, like uh, in like the C-suite of companies, for example, when they say we want more women in the C-suite, it oftentimes means white women um, and it raises the bar. It makes it harder for women of color to to get to that level because it's those positions have been filled by white women. And so I think there's a whole conversation to be had here around race and diversity and inclusion from that angle. And we will work on bringing someone on to have that conversation with us because it is something that obviously we as white women are not well-versed in. And I think it's really important to let that voice shine through. So I, I really loved all those messages that I got, but that one was very, it was this long detailed message and it, it meant a lot to me to get to see that those ideas shared and to have this person feel comfortable enough to bring that those things to our attention. So thank you so much for sliding into my DMs with that. I think it impacted how I think about the 50-50 idea like in a, in a pretty profound way. So thank you so much for, for doing that keep, keep doing it, keep sliding into the DMS. Yeah. And, um, I had kind of a couple too. um, one from this woman, Katie on Instagram talking about, she wanted to talk more about comparison and competitiveness and sportsmanship, um, specifically between women in sport and kind of obviously our experience. Um, but you know, maybe bringing in someone else and kind of doing a Q and a, and, you know, maybe putting that question out, to, to the world, to the listeners, um, you know, you can DM me or any one of us and, you know, give us your experiences about this topic of competitiveness and particularly between women in, in sport. I mean, my coach, um, you know, when I got into, to, to ultra running, I didn't always train with women. I trained with a lot of men, but it's taken me a while to, you know, train with people like Corinne and Keely and have this thing called steel sharpened steel. My coach, Adam, he always, he always says this, um, says this to me. So that's something we want to talk about. The second thing I'd like to talk about, and I think Corinne is going to jump out of her seat with this one, um, (laughs) poles versus no poles, um, and kind of the implications of that with training and kind of getting maybe into little science. I know there's lots of, there's lots of studies that show, um, you know, benefits of that. And, 
I know with Corinne's um, Nordic skiing background, she can have a lot to to uh, to to contribute to this one. So that's another topic I think we should go into too. Um, yeah, and thanks for you know the messages and keep on messaging us. Uh, I like the interactions that we're getting and building a community. So thanks everyone. Yeah, we will be. Um you know, starting to put forward or put together our next episode outline. So you've got, you've got a finite period of time to send us your inquiries and questions that we can put them together for one of our upcoming shows. Um, We want to thank you all so much for joining us for our third episode of Trail Society. Anything else to add? We all good? We did it. We did it. With all of you. (laughs) Thank you all so much. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.